0: Youth Semester 2022, it's Identity and Identification, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Kern Goss. Co hosting this series with me is Amanda Tinkle and Kate O'Brien. Today's guest is Department of History Associate Professor Benjamin H. Irvin. Professor Irvin is a social and cultural historian who focuses on early America and the United States with an emphasis on the Revolutionary Period. Irvin's recent work includes Clothed in Robes of Sovereignty, the Continental Congress, and People Out of Doors, which discusses masculinity, disability, class, and citizenship among veterans of the Revolutionary War. At IU Bloomington, Professor Irvin teaches courses that discuss manhood and masculinity in the United States, and an introduction to the history of disability. Irvin's work highlights how social norms, ideologies, military conflict, and more have influenced veteran experience all the way back from the Revolutionary War. Today, IU semester talks with Professor Irvin about his work, the history of disability, and what that means for the disabled population today.
1: So can you just begin to tell us your academic background as a historian and a professor at Indiana University, and especially about your class, Introduction to the History of Disability.
2: Sure. So my name is Benjamin Irvin, and um, I was trained as an early American historian, meaning the colonial period. I mostly teach classes on uh, colonial North America, British North America. And my own expertise, my research expertise is in the Revolutionary War, so I wrote my first book of all things on the Continental Congress, which was the gathering of delegates who came from throughout the colonies and sort of spearheaded the American resistance movement against Great Britain. Um, but my first job was teaching at the University of Arizona out in Tucson. And as I was finishing up my book on the Continental Congress, I began to think about, well, you know, what other projects on the revolution could I pursue? But the challenge of living out in Tucson out in the West is that you know most of the archives of early American history are situated on the East Coast, back in places like Boston or Philadelphia or Williamsburg, Virginia. And so how how am I going to write a book about the Revolutionary War when I'm situated in Tucson, Arizona? And I was aware that there are digitized archives of Revolutionary War veterans' pensions. These are veterans of the Revolutionary War who applied for pensions after the war and who told something about their life history um, and their experiences of war um, and that those were available to me online in Arizona so I was thinking okay that might be a fertile place to kick around um, and there was a student at University of Arizona he had actually he had just completed his PhD the year I arrived his name is Michael Rembus and Michael rembus is continues to be has been uh, something of a pioneer in the field of um, Disability history. He was he had just completed a dissertation at the time. This would have been around 2005 or 2006. He had just completed a dissertation on um, eugenics and the incarceration of uh, young women and girls who were deemed um, juvenile delinquents uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And I was teaching a course on masculinity and manhood, and Michael remus was teaching a course on disability, and we. We got together over lunch and had extensive conversations about gender and disability. And and that got me thinking, you know, perhaps these Revolutionary War veterans pensions uh, could be susceptible to a disability uh, analysis. Uh, And um, so I embarked on a course of self-education in the field of disability studies and disability history. And uh, somewhere along the line, it's, it's, it's been a few years now, I, I developed this course on the history of disability in the United States. And that's how I got into it. Okay,
1: thank you. And can you, uh, the history of disability, can you explain kind of what goes, uh, what the history of disability has looked like from your perspective as a historian?
2: Sure, so um, central to disability studies And disability history is what's known as the social model of disability. The social model of disability is a way of conceptualizing impairment and disability throughout history. And it was created specifically in response to the medical model. The medical model of disability imagines what is the doctor's job to fix the individual. The the disability is something to be cured. It is inherent in a specific person and it must be cured. Um, and so the social model came about in the 70s through the work of uh, activists and scholars, 70s and 80s, it's gained steam. And the social model imagines disability differently. Disability, the social model tells us, doesn't reside in the individual, it resides in or it arises from society's um, failure or the limitations of society's ability to accommodate physical and psychological and emotional difference. You know, the body comes in many different shapes and sizes and forms and functions and capacities. And uh, the societies in which humans have lived have sometimes done an excellent job of making room for all that variation. And other times they have, you know, norms or expectations that uh, don't fully accommodate um, all of the variations of the human condition. And so uh, from the perspective of the Social model of disability, disability arises from a society's unwillingness or inability or failure to accommodate or the limits of its ability to accommodate uh, the various conditions of the human form. And so, if that's true, now, now that's a long wind up, but here's, here's the pitch. Uh, um, if it is true that disability arises from the uh, capacity of any given society to accommodate physical and the psychological emotional difference, then That implies that disability is specific to different societies and that it changes over time. The ability of a society to accommodate, the willingness of a society to accommodate physical difference, human difference, psychological difference, changes with evolution in technology, evolution in ideology, evolution in uh, governments, and their capacity to intervene. And so we see that. So, so that's really that's a really cool insight for a historian. That way, um, disability is specific to the unique society in which it is embedded, and consequently, disability is susceptible to historical analysis. We can see the ways that disability changes from place to place and over time. Um, and you can see that in U.S. history. And so, um, I'll. I'll give you an example from my own research. For instance, um, the veterans of the Revolutionary War sought pensions on account of their war wounds from a government, the United States government that had only just within the past few years been declared into existence. This was right after uh, um, uh, promulgation of the Declaration of Independence. It was right after uh, the ratification of the United States Constitution. And so this this is a federal republic In its earliest years, without a strong bureaucracy, without a strong budget, still trying to figure out um, what its new constitution permitted and prohibited. And and you see this in the veterans' efforts to obtain um, pensions. Uh, So, for example, um, they had to appear in a a federal district court, and the district court sent them to uh, um, local physicians or surgeons to have their bodies examined. Um, so that, that's that's the revolutionary. Fast forward to World War Two, when we have where we are uh, uh, we're well through the New Deal in the United States. There is a vast um, uh, bureaucratic infrastructure uh, for the administration of social welfare programs. Um, uh, and so in World War Two to accommodate disabled veterans, uh, Congress passes what we know as the GI Bill, which is not just for disabled veterans, first for all veterans, but includes a comprehensive program of uh, veterans rehabilitation, uh, veterans care, veterans benefits that vastly exceeds uh, anything that was offered to um, uh, veterans of the Revolutionary War back in the 1780s and 1790s. So, so, you know, this is just one example of the way Disability changes with a given society, and through through the course, uh, through my course, we examine, It's it's a the course proceeds chronologically. We begin in the colonial period, and we move forward through time, and so we see how um, disability uh, intersects with the institution of chattel slavery. Um, we talk about the ways in which the supposed or imputed disabilities of Black people were used to justify, by whites, by white supremacists, to justify the institution of slavery. Um, uh, We move forward into the industrial era. So here's another example of what I was talking about, the historicity of disability. Um, Industrialization results in the creation of factories, especially, for example, in the steel industry or in the coal industry, that uh, put laborers In great peril, it was a common thing. We read an article about industrial uh, Pittsburgh, and it was a common thing in Pittsburgh to for industrial workers to lose arms or legs uh, while they worked in the coal mine. uh, Through these, you know, these coal trucks uh, uh, were pretty unregulated, and they would crash into uh, unsuspecting miners. Or uh, the steel mills, where they had hot molten steel, it was possible to uh, have uh, to to have spills or drops of heavy equipment or heavy uh, material. Uh, that resulted frequently in the amputation of limbs. So you have a, in Pittsburgh, of all places, in in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, you find the emergence of a prosthetics industry. They are making artificial limbs for the um, workers who are disabled in the steel mills and the coal mines. And that's that's something that's very specific to that moment that technological development, that region of the world where mining and steel manufacture are prevalent. Uh, And so that's what we explore in my class, in which experiences of impairment, um, the the social uh, experience of disability changes from place to place and from time to time.
1: Yeah, as you said, the Industrial Revolution, and nowadays we have more technological advancements even farther than that. Um, and so with these experiences like losing limbs from um, factories and, and things of that nature in the wide range of disabilities um, throughout the United States and other social spaces, how does um, having a disability in a society that may not be built to accommodate those things or, or centered around those um, disabilities, how does that affect someone's in the terms of identity how does that affect someone and how they view themselves or mm-hmm. um in, in the social context
2: that's an excellent question I, and i have to preface it by acknowledging that uh, you know again one of the things that emerges from the study of uh disability is you know the tremendous variation in the human condition of uh, the human body comes in all different sizes and shapes and uh functionalities and uh, same is true for human psychology, human emotional capacity, human uh, intellectual and cognitive development. And so I think it's it's critically important, and we, we talk about this in my class, it's critically important to recognize the diversity inherent within the experiences of disability. Um, and in fact, to come back to circle back to uh, um, my colleague, Michael Rembus, now at the University of Buffalo, I was speaking about him earlier. Uh, uh, you know, Michael and I were talking about it, and and I think I don't know that he's committed to this idea. But once, in a sort of a peak of frustration, he said, "You know, the more I've, I study disability, the less comfortable I am with it as a category, or the less certain I am that, as a category, it even exists." Um, obviously, impairment exists. Obviously, people experience um, discrimination on the basis of. Uh, their difference. Uh, so uh, Michael didn't mean to imply that disability doesn't exist in that regard, but simply that as a, as an umbrella category, disability is so broad that uh, uh, when you begin to study it, you realize that many of the generalizations slip away, and you can't presume uh, too much commonality of experience. But so so to to, to try to take a to stab, stab at your question, you know, how does disability shape identity? How does disability shape uh, uh, a sense of self? Um, I, you know, if if we think again of disability emerging from the failure of society or the imperfect uh, ability of society to accommodate um, difference, I think uh, the experience of that sort of uh, discrimination or oppression causes the individual or can cause an individual to question, you know, their sense of belonging. Is this is this government? Is this society? made for me? Does it believe in me? Does it acknowledge me? Um, And I think uh, there can be a powerful sense of erasure that comes from attempting to navigate a built environment, for example, that doesn't account for you. Um, Or I'm I'm reminded of when you read an essay about an organization called the League of the Physically Handicapped, uh, which was a small group of disability advocates in the era of the Great Depression, and they were seeking um, work relief. They were out of jobs, and what they what they understood all too well is that they could not get jobs for which they were extremely well qualified because of their disability. Uh, and, uh, and the example that comes to mind is there's there's um, a woman. Uh, and I forget the nature of her disability, but I believe she may have used a wheelchair or a cane and she trained in business school and she was tops of her class and uh, uh, she couldn't get a job and so she went to typing school perhaps I hope I'm not uh, distorting the facts, but she went to typing school and she was the fastest typist and she was, she was perfectly equipped to be uh administrative assistant or what in those days would have been called a secretary but no one would hire her because she used a chair and uh, or a cane and even though that was completely irrelevant to the work that she was doing or was trained to do um and it would have had no impact on her ability to perform her um, occupation she continued to meet this sort of ableist discrimination in the hiring place and so that that was profoundly frustrating to her because she could see plainly through the dysfunction of this system that refused to acknowledge her capabilities and left her frankly with nowhere to go so so here's a woman who's highly qualified to work in an office setting and she was being you know sort of shunted to these uh uh, public work environments that were set aside for persons with disability, where she was asked to do menial labor for a fraction of her of her, uh, you know, the wages she might have otherwise been earning, and, and that was profoundly frustrating, and felt like it had it had the capacity to to make her feel like a sort of castaway or a castoff, um, and uh, the early uh, work relief programs that came out of the Roosevelt administration um were created to make work for individuals but they didn't have any accommodations or recognitions of persons with disabilities uh this woman still even under uh i believe it was the worst progress administration but it was under a new deal work regimen this woman could still f- not find work because the program wasn't set up with her so they went and stage to sit in but that's just an example of some of the ways that a person who who inhabits a society that doesn't take account their difference can feel uh, excluded, um, uh, oppressed, erased, uh, whose lives can just be made very difficult.
1: Yeah. And then you definitely just reminded me of something. So recently I have been looking at jobs and applications and one of the sections now that you can voluntarily fill out is a disability um, recognition section. And that is something that it's it's voluntary you don't have to fill out but that's a a new thing that I've noticed in every single job application that I've done in the past like month or so and so with like the job discrimination that she faced and things of that nature what are other kinds of obstacles or stigmas and discriminations that um, someone within the community someone that has a disability um, would face that um, an able-bodied person would not that could affect who they are and how they're perceived
2: Sure. So, through much of U.S. history, um, one of the primary forces of discrimination, or one of the primary manifestations of discrimination, and you know, barriers to access. Um, and barriers to access come in a variety of forms. And again, uh, this this underscores the the variation in of human capacity, human ability. And so, uh, maybe that's uh, building that. Uh, depended exclusively on stairs where there are no elevators uh, or you know, uh, sidewalks with curbs that are non-navigable to persons with disabilities. Um, uh, I, I suspect most of the listeners to this podcast will not remember public payphones, but there was an era in which payphones were equipped with teletype devices that allowed persons who were deaf or harder of hearing to communicate on the phone it was i i i I gather from what I've read that it was kind of a cumbersome system, but it was an accommodation all the same um today we see you know it's it's important to, uh when you're working on in digital environments to provide captioning and uh, videos for example um most of us who uh who uh walk down the street will encounter um uh Tactile paving, the little bumps you see on the road, on the sidewalk, right before you reach the curb. Well, that's that—that that is there to be, um, because it is detectable uh, to persons with visual impairment or blindness. And so, these are these, many of these creations are consequences of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was uh, ratified in 1990, and which in turn built upon uh, the Architectural Barriers Act. 1968, you know, a recognition that our human built environment does not accommodate all the uh, various forms and functionalities that humans take. Those are, those are built environment sort of stuff, very material, very physical, very concrete. But there are also stereotypes or prejudices or preconceptions. One of the things we talk about in my classes, what's called the presumption of incompetence. Uh, and the presumption of incompetence is something that many able-bodied people have when they encounter a person with a disability that uh, uh that person has one disability and therefore they they have a general sort of blanket inability to do anything and i don't know if you've ever watched a sitcom or a movie where somebody uh raises their voice in an attempt to communicate with a blind person um that's because they're applying the presumption of incompetence they think well this person is deaf and so i need to uh uh, this person is blind, and therefore, I need to, um, you know, uh, speak up. is is a a, a false belief that uh, disability is tantamount to uh, total incapacitation. And there are flip sides to that too. There there can be dangerous presumptions of competence as well. Uh, so one of the one of the topics for study in disability studies, topics of conversation, is. Uh, uh, invisible disabilities, visible disabilities that are not readily apparent. You know, uh, somebody using a wheelchair, somebody walking with a cane, somebody uh, with a prosthetic leg. That's a that's a visible disability. But there are all kinds of disabilities that uh, aren't immediately recognizable uh, to to you know uh, casual onlookers. And so so and often in those situations, the casual onlooker assumes or presumes that the That a person is, you know, able-bodied and is consequently capable of doing again what our society expects able-bodied people to do, and that that can be very exhausting for a person who may have uh, some sort of impairment or medical condition that uh, is not readily uh, visible to other people in the world. Another thing you learn about uh, impairment when you study it is that you know the physical symptoms of impairment sometimes depending on the nature of the impairment sometimes they wax and wane there may be days when a person who uses a cane needs the cane and there may be days when a person who uses a cane doesn't need their cane but those days when that person doesn't need their cane does not mean they're not impaired Um, and it doesn't mean they can meet every expectation of a hostile built environment Um, and so that's, a, that's the, the presumptions of competence, presumptions of incompetence, uh, presumptions about bodily capacity, psychological capacity, emotional capacity are baked into this notion of ableism. We return to time and again in my course, and ableism is sort of a, a discriminatory or oppressive belief system uh, uh, that privileges uh, the able body and the expectation of supposedly able bodies.
1: Yes, and something that you brought up with the invisible uh, disabilities or invisible impairments that makes me think of things like mental illness and with this new um, trend in social media and kind of activism on recognizing those kinds of things. Uh, looking throughout history and then in modern day as well, um, has the accommodations and recognition of disability or impairment? Um, has it like progressed? Is it getting more recognition, getting better? Is there um, more accommodations, and is it a social push or is it more of a go- governmental recognition
2: as well? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. And that's really gets into the the meat of my syllabus for um, my disability course. And so one of the things we learn in, one of the fascinating things about disability, if it, and, I, and I can do this with, you know, all my undergraduate students, is is as we work through this semester, I want you to start writing words that are used in various historical moments to describe or define disability, right? And when you make this long list, and I'm going to give two, and it it doesn't give me particular pleasure to uh, speak these words aloud, but... um, We recognize that these words were used throughout at various moments in history to describe persons with disability in the uh, late 1600s, excuse me, two words that were common for uh, psychological or cognitive or mental or emotional disabilities were idiocy and lunacy, idiocy and lunacy, and so Uh, we began in the colonial period. And so I asked these students to write these kinds of words down all through the semester, and maybe it's handicapped, maybe it's crippled. But you see that the very vocabulary that is used to describe um, disability changes over time. And that's, that's your first clue that disability is a social construct. Disability is specific to unique societies and unique moments in time, and it changes over time. And consequently, it's Uh, susceptible to historical analysis but to come back to your question one of the things we discover in my class one of the first things we read is a law from massachusetts and i believe it dates to the early 1600s um, and it provides for the care of um, and then it uses those terms idiots and lunatics and the way that the system worked was that the colonial government of massachusetts would gather taxes And it would allocate some of those taxes. It would send some of those tax dollars to towns to take care of people who were so-called idiots or lunatics. And that usually happened by placing either. If they could live with their families, they would live with their families and their families might get a little more uh, financial support or or perhaps more commonly, they would be sent to work in private homes. Um, And so some town would volunteer here to take care of a person, and maybe they would put that person to work or maybe not, um, and the town would give them a little bit of tax money for that purpose. That's the colonial era. And then, um, you know, in the, the early 1800s, uh, there was a social reformer by the name of Dorothea Dix, a famous social reformer who went throughout the Massachusetts countryside visiting private homes and institutions where uh, persons that we would today recognize as uh, persons with mental illness or persons with psychological impairments, uh, where those people were kept in house. And what she discovered were deplorable conditions, uh, physical abuse, malnourishment, inadequate heating, inadequate cooling, uh, complete, complete, uh um, completely improper uh, dwelling spaces. Um, and uh, this reformer, Dorothea Dix, went to the Massachusetts later, legislature, and she later went to the United States Congress and testified about what she saw. And that gave rise, in part, to an asylum movement. Uh, and so we move an asylum system. Asylum is kind of like a hospital. Uh, uh, it is a, it is, a, is a residential care facility, usually uh, operated by the states themselves. Uh, for the provision of care, the treatment of people who could not care for themselves. Um, and you know, there are elaborate theories about the architecture of asylums. There's something called the Kirk Bride Plan, which is the literally the footprint or the blueprint of an asylum. It's supposed to be designed with these wings with very rash the rationality. And, you know, mere rectangularity of the building is supposed to uh provide a sense of order and calm to a person who is uh, experiencing mental illness. Uh, and there are, so there, there are treatment plans that go along with this, the moral treatment, which is very light on work and light on uh, the sort of stimulating uh, exercise, stimulating reading, stimulating foods, anything that would be disruptive or excite a person was, was supposed to uh, be minimized. That's, that's the mid 1800s. You know, and then we move forward in the 20th century and we have the emergence of a full-blown welfare state with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, And a lot of this actually, believe it or not, is driven by developments in veterans care. So the veterans of the Revolutionary War got pensions and the veterans of the Civil War were placed in uh, soldiers and sailors' homes; these were sort of like retirement homes for veterans with significant disabilities of the Civil War. That proved to be extremely expensive, and so one of the one of the weird things that's happening is that um, Civil War veterans are very old in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the federal government has paid a lot of money to sustain these veterans. Uh, with their disabilities throughout their long lives. And so right then on the eve of World War I, legislators say, well, that was it was really expensive to give pensions and to, to house Civil War veterans. We're paying a lot of money for that. So now that we're looking at this uh, next military conflict, what we'll do is um, we will provide uh, rehabilitative medicine and occupational training. Will train veterans on how to do jobs that they otherwise couldn't do, um, and uh, then by World War II, that that emerges into a full GI Bill with uh, occupational rehabilitation and education and uh, uh, financial assistance of various kinds, and uh, uh, so so this is the way that the role of the state changes as the state develops as the state grows bigger, as the state grows more competent, if you will.
1: And thank you for touching on that. And so one of the last questions that I have for you, um, just one little quick one that I didn't have earlier is, do you have an insight or um, on the inclusion and and, uh, awareness of mental health and mental disability um, in terms of we've been talking a lot about physical disability what is the um history and recognition of mental health in terms of um, accommodations or just the recognition of a kind of disability
2: that's an excellent question and we talk about it a lot in my class and i'll, I'll circle back to the uh exam view earlier of idiocy and lunacy um uh and to those terms, I uh, again, those terms are so unfortunate and so uh disappointing, and yet, and yet they pervade, they pervade our English. One of the things that strikes me when I teach disability history is that so many of the words we use as insult um, owe themselves to ableist discrimination against persons with disability. I mean, if you think of words like um, idiot, fool, dumb, um, lunatic. Uh I I may have even said yesterday in an email, uh whatever, I was I was I was uh riled up about something or another and I was complaining and I said that's insane. Well there it, there it is, that's ableist, you know, it pervades our language. Um but um so so there's throughout history there is a very powerful, forceful recognition of psychological and mental impairment. So our society expects the individual to provide for him or herself and for his or her dependents. You with me? It's, it's a, there is a very powerful expectation of personal responsibility. And the idea is kind of, if everybody takes care of themselves, we can keep moving forward. Right? So in our society, the individual is expected to take care of his or herself and, uh, dependence, right? Um, and persons who have severe uh, psychological impairments or severe cognitive impairments uh, often are not capable of doing so. D- disability, arguably, disability arises where individuals cannot have that basic expectation that they provide for themselves and their dependence. Disability arises because our society doesn't have a good answer to the I'm just going to say problem, but that's from the logic inherent in what I'm saying. Disability arises because our society doesn't have a good good way of handling people who cannot meet that fundamental expectation that they provide for themselves. Um, And persons with severe cognitive and mental uh, incapacities often can't. And they've been present throughout most, if not all, of history. And they're certainly present in history from the beginning of the United States. So that that early Massachusetts law, it doesn't say this is how we'll take care of amputees. It doesn't say this is how we will take care of the blind. It says this is how we'll take care of idiots and lunatics. So in in, in many ways, psychological and uh, mental disability or impairment have been at the forefront of Governmental and societal awareness in U.S. history; uh, those asylums that I described earlier were uh, commonly inhabited by persons, or set aside for persons with uh, cognitive or psychological impairment. But just because our society has been aware of such individuals uh, doesn't mean it's always been responsive to or accommodating of them. And so, I mentioned before that some impairment not readily visible. Uh, that some uh, the symptoms of some impairments uh, uh, wax and wane, uh, and that is true for many persons with. Uh, you know, I've I've mentioned I've I've twice used the uh, adjective severe when describing the accommodations that were set aside for persons with uh, psychological and uh, cognitive impairments. That severe impairments, but there are lots of people who have more moderate psychological or cognitive challenges that. Are not accommodated, but that leave those persons uh, vulnerable to discrimination, leave those persons challenged in the performance of life tasks for which, and it can be difficult. It can be difficult to recognize. It can be difficult to get uh, those individuals the appropriate care um, or the appropriate recognition of the challenges they face. And so, it's something that you know changes from historical moment. The recognition is certainly there because our society gets tripped up when it's got individuals within it who can't provide for themselves. Um, we see that with homelessness. We see that with drug dependencies. Um, our society doesn't always have good answers to those issues. And so it can be the same for persons with disabilities.
1: Yes, yes. I thought, I thought that was a, a great answer to that. Um, I thought you did a great job explaining that for it's,
2: us. You're very kind, um, Amanda
1: yes <laughs> thank you and so I, I agree that i think it is um great that we are able to even have these discussions with each other
2: well it's nice to be able to speak with you and i'm grateful that you all gave me this chance
1: yes and thank you so much again for joining us we had a great discussion today
0: Today's episode is a part of IU Bloomington's 2022 semester, Identity and Identification. To learn more about this year's theme, today's guest, or semester events, visit themester.indiana.edu. Semester Identity and Identification is sponsored by Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences and is created in part by producer Brooklyn Shively and semester director Tracy B. Thank you for listening.